Um, we're going to continue in Galatians this morning. Um, if you don't have a Bible, there's one back there. Um, if you don't want to get up, there's uh, some cool apps that get you to the Bible pretty quickly. Um, there's also some booklets that um, we've uh, provided to just help navigate through the series with some good questions that you can use and walk through. Um, I, I'm, I just want to say how amazing um, and what an awesome thing it is that you would would see the significance of getting up in the morning and coming to this place um, and sitting under the authority of God and his word. Um, and I don't ever want to lose sight of the value of that. Um, that you would in some way see some type of value that God would have something to say to you because there's, there's surely nothing he's going to say out of my fleshly mouth that's going to be of any value, but only what his spirit can and will do. So um, I want to pray and ask that he would do that because I have nothing to bring to the table this morning. So would you pray with me? God, I thank you for each person that's here. And God, I thank you for your word. And um, God, I thank you that you're real and you're living and you're active. And God, I, I kneel before you as a mortal man who has nothing to bring to people who are hungry for hope in their life. in the same way that I'm hungry for hope in my life. And so, God, I pray that you'd bring clarity. I pray that um, you would cast off the weight of broken religion that we're battered with day in and day out as some false facade of hope. And, God, would you change us? But I'm desperate for you. We are desperate for you um, to bring some type of eternal value from something that you make very clear has no value in human effort to just come to church and listen to preaching and sing a song and go back and continue on with our lives. God, would you change us? We love you. And God, would we be never the same as a result of what happens today? In Jesus' name, amen. I want to I begin with this thought. I, I don't know how you view the Bible, but um, I want to put this quote up by um, this Christian thinker. And I want to put two, like really a dichotomy in front of us. Um, You have to make a fundamental decision when you read the Bible. Is the Bible about you and what you must do? Or is it about God and what he has done? Now, there might be a little bit of struggle there because you're like, well, isn't the answer both? But here's, here's what I want to contend for and here's what I want us to see this morning is that the institutionalized church has worked so hard, maybe intentionally, maybe not, sometimes intentionally, sometimes not, oppressing us in many ways with, um, here's what you must do, here's who you must be, and oftentimes it's detached from the work of God and the will of God and the ways of God. And so um, I'm just going to continue on the theme. Thanks, Rick, for... uh, we're going to lift some weights, so um, can you hold this for me? Yeah. You have to set your coffee down, buddy. Let's see. Here, anybody? You can get, the, get the lift in there. You got that? I'll keep these up here in case I get bored and want to do some curls or something. Here's the thing is that what we've been talking about and what we've learned and what we're diving into is this idea that Broken religion is about 
the areas of life that call us to a way of life that adds weight to us and burden to us and oppression to us that God never intended. And here's the thing is when we dichotomize and separate the work of God from what we're called to do, it will always lead to broken religion and never the gospel. Because here's the truth. This idea of what we must do is what we call religion oftentimes. It's, this, it's the work attitude that must be, and what we've been talking about and what we'll continue to talk about this morning, is that must be informed with a foundation of here's what God has done. Saturated with grace. Right? So it's never this, I'm going to throw this weight on you and good luck bearing it. But it's always like, I'm going to carry the weight. And yeah, I'm going to call you to some things. And yeah, I'm going to ask you to live a certain kind of life and do certain kind of things. But it's never negated and and pulled away from, here's who Jesus is and what he has done. It's bathed in an identity. So here's what I want to do. And I want you to bear with me because I think this is really, really important. I want to help us get some clarity. Um, So on your seat was a little handout. It has 11 statements. um, And I'm going to read through these statements because, listen, these statements can and will change your life. Um, Now, I'm not the author of these statements. I'll give credit to who credit is due. A brilliant thinker, pastor in New York called Tim, not called, his name is Tim Keller. Um, And uh, and so I want to walk through these, and and we'll talk about a couple here a little bit later. Um, But I want you to see the difference, the difference in thinking between broken religion and the gospel. The first one, broken religion, says, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. In the gospel, I'm accepted, therefore I am. Obey. God's work informs my work. It's never the opposite. Broken religion says, my motivation is based on fear and insecurity. I got to do this. I got to do that. I got to do this because I'm, I'm afraid. I'm not sure. The gospel motivation is based on grateful joy. Broken religion, I obey God in order to get things from God. The gospel, I obey God to get to God, to delight and resemble him. Broken religion. When circumstances in my life go wrong, I am angry at God or myself since I believe, like Job's friends, that anyone who is good deserves a comfortable life. The gospel. When circumstances in my life go wrong, I struggle. But I know all my punishment fell on Jesus and that while he may allow this for my training, he will exercise his fatherly love within my trial. Those are vastly different. Broken religion. When I'm criticized, I'm furious or devastated because it is critical that I think of myself as a good person. Threats to that self-image must be destroyed at all costs. The gospel. When I'm criticized, I struggle. But it is not critical for me to think of myself as a good person. My identity is not built on my record or my performance, but on God's love for me in Christ. I can take criticism. Broken religion. 
my prayer life consists largely in petition. And it only heats up when I'm in a time of need. My main purpose in prayer is to control the environment. Maybe that's been you, you know, in this you know, the craziness of our world and the polarization of our world. And we, God, we need to pray because we need you to change things. The, the gospel, my prayer life, consists in generous stretches of praise and adoration. My main purpose is fellowship with God. Because our hope isn't in changing things. Broken religion. My self-view swings between two poles. If and when I'm living up to my standards, I feel confident, but when I'm prone, but then I am prone to be proud and unsympathetic to failing people. If and when I'm not living up to standards, I feel insecure and inadequate. I'm not confident. I feel like a failure. The gospel. My self-view is not based on a view of myself as a moral achiever. In Christ, I'm simultaneously sinful and yet accepted in Christ. I'm so bad he had to die for me, and I'm so loved he was glad to die for me. This leads me to deeper and deeper humility and confidence at the same time, neither swaggering nor sniveling. Broken religion, my identity and self-worth are based mainly on how hard I work or how moral I am. And so I must look down on those who perceive who I perceive as lazy or immoral. I disdain and feel superior to the other. The gospel, my identity and my self-worth are centered on the one who died for his enemies, who is excluded from the city for me. I am saved by sheer grace, so I cannot look down on those who believe or practice something different from me. Only by grace I am what I am. I have no inner need to win the argument. Broken religion. Since I look to my own pedigree or performance for my spiritual acceptability, my heart manufactures idols. It may be my talents, my moral record, my personal discipline, my social status, etc. I absolutely have to have them so they serve as my main hope, meaning, happiness, security, and significance. Whatever I may say, I believe about God. The gospel. I have many good things in my life, family, work, spiritual disciplines, etc. But none of these things, none of these good things are ultimate things to me. None of them are things I'm, I absolutely have to have. So there's a limit to how much anxiety, bitterness, and despondency they can inflict on me when they are threatened and lost. Man, I, I hope that maybe one of those statements just absolutely resonated with you and you circle it and highlight it and put it, put it up for this week for you to, um, to grapple with. Because here's the thread that runs through the gospel side of all of those Things. It's grace. It's look what God has done. It's grace that informs everything. So go, let's go to Galatians. We're in Galatians chapter 2. You can turn there. Galatians was written um, to churches that Paul uh, had helped to, to start. And, and Paul had, had, what he was trying to do is he was going to counter this false idea that the gospel um, included like the gospel and something else. So there was a way into faith, but it wasn't just by Jesus. 
It was by maybe Jesus and some change of behavior. Um, It was by Jesus and something else. And so Paul was trying to counter false teachers who are undermining the central New Testament teaching what's called justification by faith. By faith, not by church attendance, not by being a good person, um, not by having good kids, not by having a good job, not by being seen as successful, but by faith. And so Galatians is God's attack against legalism of every kind. Um, let's look at uh, verse, verses 1 and 2. It says, Then after 14 years I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaimed among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. So Paul clearly sets out that he has this motive that he's going um, to this place, to Jerusalem, first and foremost because he had a revelation from God. Like God had moved in his heart. I was thinking about that as I was reading this and I was planning to stand before you. My, my desire, my goal every time I stand up here is that God would reveal himself to me in such a way that I could bring what he's revealed. That This isn't just here's some thought, Dave's thoughts about the scriptures, but this is a revelation from God for us for today. That's what, that's what Paul had. God had met with Paul. Listen, when, God, when, when you meet with God and he inspires your heart, all you can do is go and you can tell. And that's, so that's what Paul was doing. He said, uh, to, to set before them the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles. He's like, I want to declare it and communicate it and be an advocate to the Gentiles, to the irreligious, to the unlikely people who the good Christian church religious people would say needed to become like them in order to actually be accepted by God. See, many doubted Paul. They struggled with his view of God. Maybe it went something like this. Man, Paul... After his conversion, we had so, such high hopes for Paul. After all, no one else in this generation was better trained in God's tour than he. But now he's departed from the faith of Jesus and the apostles. He's carrying on a negative campaign against the law, totally divorcing the Messiah from the nation of Israel. He's a dangerous radical who must be stopped before he completely overturns the Jewish character of our faith by bringing into the church those Gentiles who shun so basic a requirement of the law as Circumcision. So the big debate here is what was set out by God in Acts, or I'm sorry, in Genesis 17, the, the law's requirement of, of circumcision, which we'll talk about in just a second. But Paul's decree, Paul's purpose, when he came to this region was, I want to fight against division and what will destroy the church. What will divide the church, oftentimes we think about stepping into a place and, and trying to resolve conflict that it's just gonna, it could bring greater conflict. But Paul's like, no, it's, what's, it's, what's at stake is something incredibly, incredibly important. And the truth is, is there's this massive lie, is that we have to be a certain kind of person to follow Jesus. That our life has to look a certain way 
in order for God to love us and accept us, that we have to be this certain kind of person. And it majors on what we must do rather than what God has, what God has done. Here's the truth. I don't care your background. I don't care what you've gotten yourself into. I don't care how unchurched you've been. I don't care how churched you've been. The gospel is for you. Don't believe the lies, the weight that's thrown on you by the world, by broken religion. The gospel's for for everyone. Not just those who are cleaned up and perfect. And in fact, the gospel's more for those who aren't. Look at verse 3. So Paul, he's fighting for the gospel alone. And he says, but even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. So let me give you some context and some background. Um, circumcision was a part of the law back, if you, you can look it up in Genesis chapter 17. Um, if you don't know what circumcision is, you can ask the person to your left uh, after the service. Um, we'll just go with that. Um, but the Jewish people believed that this, it was in God's law, circumcision was in God's law, um, originated in the special covenant God had made with Abraham that every male child would be circumcised on the eighth day after they're born. And this was a symbol of participation with the chosen people of God. We see it later on um, actually as a metaphor where, the, where Jeremiah in Jeremiah 4, 4 says, circumcise yourselves and take away the foreskin of your heart. Well, the New Testament, we see circumcision was regarded by devout Jews as an indispensable precondition and a seal of participation in God's covenant community. So it, was so, it became so much so, and there's so much history around this, um, became such a huge deal that there were individuals within the Jewish culture who, who, would, who viewed it such as a, as a mandate that anyone who hadn't been circumcised, you, you could have no, no dealings with them. Okay? And so, so here's what's crazy. Paul, brilliant, has this idea. We're going to go have this debate, and I'm going to bring an uncircumcised Gentile with me. Okay? And so in Acts chapter 15, there's this massive debate that goes down. It says, no small dissension. But in verse 6, it says this, The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Paul stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. So it's like God's giving the Holy Spirit to the ones that the people of God thought they, they're not, they don't have the credentials. Okay, They're not cleaned up. They don't have their life together. They haven't followed the ceremonial, everything perfect, cross every I, dot every T. And he made no distinction between us and them. Having cleansed their heart by 
faith. God cleansed their heart by faith, not by their external behavior. He cleansed their heart by faith. Verse 10, now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke by placing a weight on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we had been able to bear, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And so Paul comes fiery, comes passionate to fight for our freedom, to fight for the fact that that everything that we're to be and all that we're to be as God's people was placed on Jesus and then informs then how we live. So it becomes an identity. An identity becoming in practice who we are already in God's sight. Good verse 4. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we may have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery. To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Here's the truth. At the heart of broken religion is people inside and outside the church that are trying to throw weights on us and burdens on us to be perfect people and sabotage, really sabotage our freedom and our understanding of the gospel. And ultimately, it's the enemy. That we have a real enemy, and the, what the enemy wants to do is he wants to bind us. Scripture says that he can't, he's come to steal, kill, and destroy. That he wants to put fear in us. That he wants to put insecurity in us. That he wants to overwhelm us. That, oh, if you're a Christian, then that means you have all the answers. Does it... Does it Does it bother any other Christian that's, all of you that as you try to live out your faith, that you might get asked a question that you don't know how to answer? Anybody? Okay, thank you. Yeah. It doesn't matter, right? It, like, oh yeah, I have God figured out. I know all the answers. I know how to solve the polarization of our country. Um, I, I know how to do all of this stuff. No, we don't. Which, why at the end of the day, we don't pray God change our circumstances. God, give us you. For it's in the changed life of the people of God that the world will be changed. Notice I said the changed life, not the changed perception of life as you type on your computer, your comments to all people's statuses on who you are and what you think, but your life, actually how you live, and actually how I live, is that we would be so impacted by God, is that it would impact how we repent to our kids. It would impact how we ask for forgiveness of our teachers who don't even know Jesus. Hey, I was convicted by the Lord the other day. I cheated on that test. I need to confess. I need to ask your forgiveness. That would be an unbelievably powerful work of God for a Christian student to do that to an unbelieving teacher. Yeah, you're probably going to get an F, and there are probably going to be some consequences for that. But talk about living out the gospel in a transformed way. 
so freeing. It's so freeing. Listen, it's so freeing for us to, in this moment, to be able to say we're simultaneously broken and wretched. And simultaneously, and Jesus loved and accepted. And that'll give you something to get up in the morning for. You don't have to get up and be this amazing person and perform this religious juggling act. Scripture says you've, given, you've been given everything you need for life and godliness. So there's a couple statements that I read. I'm going to look back at them. The, f- the first one was this. Broken religion. Mo- motivation is based on fear and insecurity, whereas the gospel motivation is based on grateful joy. Okay? So a changed life is the overflow of my interaction and my encounter with God be it ever so broken. Like, you ever feel like if, if you're a follower of Jesus, that your pursuit of God is just ever so broken, and half the time it's like one step forward and like 17 steps back? But it's not based on fear. Fear is like, you're driving down the road, and you see a cop, and you, you slow down, you're like, and you check your mirror, check your mirror, check your mirror. Anybody? You're with me? Check, you're like... And then you ever had the one where the lights go on and, and all of a sudden, like, they get the other, the, the other person right by you? Like, you so deserved it. I so deserved it. Right? It's when I'm the boss at Subway and I'm working, and when the boss is there, man, everyone is just amazing. So I, I'm like, dude, you're such an amazing worker. Like, you're always on your game. It's because the boss is there. It's because you're afraid to not do things right. It's fear based. It's. And I have to prove something in mentality. And here's the truth. Well, let's be honest. On a practical level, we would say, we don't believe that, that works can get you into heaven. But yet we live as if our acceptance from God is based on our performance. We say good works can't save us. Yet we live as if they could And as I've said it before, I'll say it again. God isn't pleased with some future version of you. God isn't looking down at you and saying, man, I love that person you're going to be in in five years. No, he's like, I love you. Go look at yourself in the mirror and and think about that. The holy, perfect God that in Jesus Christ, you're completely his. Completely his. That'll change how you live. That'll inform how you talk. That'll inform how you dress. That'll inform how you love and serve. Broken religion says, since I look to my own pedigree or performance for my spiritual acceptability, my heart manufactures idols. It may be my talents, my moral record, my personal discipline, my social status. I absolutely have to have them So they serve as my main hope, meaning, happiness, security, and significance. Whatever I may say, I believe about God. And so here's what we do. We take performance, and we take possessions, and we hold them ever so tightly because this is what we cling to. If I don't have this, how will people view me? If I drive this, how will people view me? If I wear this, how will people view me? If I'm not the boss, how will people view me? In the gospel, I have many good things. 
in my life, family, work, spiritual disciplines, but none of these good things are ultimate things to me. None of these things are, are things I absolutely have to have. So there's a limit to how much anxiety, bitterness, and despondency they can inflict on me when they are threatened and lost. Because our hope isn't in that. Our hope isn't in how President Trump will govern our country. It's not in that. Because we have a God who's bigger than a president. He says he holds the heart of kings in his hand. And even to the extent that they do much evil, God is a God of justice and God is a God who is God. So let me just remind us this morning that God didn't get dethroned on Friday. Look at verse 6. This is where it gets really good. For those that are bored, here we go. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. I love that. God's like, I'm not impressed with your platform. I'm not impressed with how you maybe do have it all together and you may be an incredible person and you may be an incredible um, employer and you may be an incredible servant. I'm not impressed with your platform. I show no partiality. Those I say who seem influential add nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been trusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just that Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me from mine to the Gentiles. I'll come back to that in just a second. And when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor the very thing I was eager to do. I love this because when you bring the gospel next to power and weight, okay, we live in a country where power is abused. We've been a part of churches where power and weight is abused and it's used to manipulate, it's used, used to hurt, it's used to get for yourself. In the name of God. And here's what I love about what we just read. What did, what did Paul say? He said, I have my own ministry and it's to the Gentiles. And Peter... He has a ministry, and it's to the Jews, it's to the church people, it's to the religious people, and they're both the mission of God. Like, it's so freaking empowering, isn't it? Because there's people in your life that you're going to reach and you're going to love on that would think I'm an absolute idiot and would believe nothing out of my mouth but they're unbelievably impressed with the way that you serve and love in your workplace. God's given you kids that if they were in my home, 
It wouldn't go well. God's given me kids that if they were in your home, it wouldn't go well. He's put you and placed you for a specific purpose. Or maybe I'll say this for those of you that may be like, where's he put me? He's directing your steps for maybe what's next for the purpose of leveraging a platform and a a power for him and for him alone. That's what it's talking about in in verse 7 and 8. Listen, the gospel has nothing to do with hierarchy. It's about Jesus and his life. Jesus says, the last shall be first. So let me make this just, let me just speak out of the overflow of my life for a minute here. The brokenness that it is. Broken religion says this, that as a preacher, I need to be on my A game every Sunday. And that I need to be up here and I need to be able to wow you and draw you in and have great things to say and great illustrate. Like I, I'm even sitting there and sitting at home this morning and I'm like, man, I, I could really use a couple more illustrations. I need some brain breaks. Like people are going to get bored at this point. Like I'm literally believing, and there's some of that that's true, but broken religion says that, that me as a pastor, I got to be on my A game, that it's my job to feed you and to keep you healthy. And, and, and even further, that Rick and I were the ministers. Like, we're the real ministers, and then there's you guys. Like, that's, that's nonsense. It's broken religion. And it's an unbelievable amount of pressure. But here's what the gospel says. I'm as broken as you are. Absolutely as broken as you are, even though I have a mic and even though I have a platform. I'm no better. Even though I have an education, I'm no better. And it's your job to feed you and be a healthy Christian. I just have the unbelievable privilege to walk with you in it. In the same way that you have the unbelievable privilege to walk with the person next to you in it. Why? Because that's what family does. That's what family is. The truth is, we're all ministers. I just have the unbelievable privilege to help equip you. And help empower you and help remind you that this thing called the Christian life isn't about you. Which is why it goes into this whole platform thing, right? Like, Peter, James, and, and John, like the pillars in the church that it specifically says God's not impressed with. Like, when you think of the church, and you think of religion, you think of Christianity, and you see these people on TV, and you see these big wigs, like, that you're just like, wow. God's not like, wow. At all. Can I just say this? That when you unselfishly serve that unbelievably annoying person at school that no one else likes, when you unselfishly serve your parents at home, when you unselfishly love on your boss, listen, that no no one knows about and no one sees. The heavens look down and are praising God saying, yes, look at that follower of mine that's been so moved by me that it impacts how they live. 
See, there's a real danger to leverage your platform in a very, very dangerous way. So God's given me a crazy context to love in the business world, which if you would have told me that several years um, when I was growing up, I would have been like, yeah, right. And so I, 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 have, I have a lot of power. And I'm nervous even talking about this, but I, I, have, a, I have a lot of power um, in my parents' businesses, I help directly and indirectly oversee some 30 to 40 employees um, from people from their first job to people who this is their career and they're living in this. Okay, from managers to assistant managers to regular employees. And every day I pray, every day I pray that God would enable me because like, I, li- I literally set people's pay. I literally determine like, if you have a job or if you don't have a job. Do, are, you, are you performing up to par? Are you not performing up to par? And for those of you that are bosses, it's a lot of power. And you can use that for your glory and for the destruction of people or you can use it to serve. Listen, whether you're a boss in a company whether you're the captain of a team, whether you're a leader in the home, you can use it to destroy and oppress. Men, we have a lot of power. And we've seen recently the reality that men have abused historically the power that we've been given and dethroned and dehumanized women in a very ungodly way. white people, we have a lot of power and we've seen historically what we have done to abuse and to oppress. This is why, this is why in the scriptures, the big wigs of the church say in verse 10, remember the poor. The very thing I was eager to do. He's saying, don't, don't use your platform to build your life on minorities, on the weak. Because it's easy to do. You want to do it? You want to build your life, man. Find people. Take advantage of them. Build your business. God will not be impressed. But what an unbelievable joy and opportunity when the scriptures and Paul says, remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. I pray every day that God would use my platform as a boss, my platform here to love and to serve you. That God would use the platform he's given me to hire with integrity, to pay people with integrity, to fire people even with value, as nonsense as that may sound. What is your platform? What kind of power has God given you? And why are you even pursuing it? Is it to love and serve yourself? Or is it to make famous and make much of the living God? A guy by the name of Scott Thomas says, Religion, religious people are glory thieves, taking from God what is rightfully his. Listen, you and I have the unbelievable, joyful privilege to serve people every day in our lives. Not for ourselves, but for his glory and for his name. Let's pray.
and uh, just let God do what he wants to do. Father, I've said a lot, and I pray that it's been your spirit. And I pray that you would move and you would work. Jesus, you are, you're so great. You are so holy. And I pray that your truth and your gospel, God, where there's broken religion, God, it's in all of us. We're, pr- we're all prone to it. We all believe that somehow maybe there's answers there. But the truth is, is that, that our only hope is in you. And so, Jesus, would you be that hope? Would you work in our hearts, God? you enable us to leverage the power and the platform that we have for your name. God, would you set people free? God, would you set me free this morning from the lies that I believe, from the the burdens I bear? That God, you say, I want to take that from you. God, would you move as we respond in Jesus' name, amen.